A few years ago, I was reading this really thoughtful, really helpful, uh, also really provocative, and maybe for some readers, a really jarring book by N.T. Wright called Surprised by Hope. And ever since that first read, there's been one passage that has sort of stuck with me. He writes, Easter ought to be an eight-day festival with champagne served after morning prayer or even before, with lots of alleluias and extra hymns and spectacular anthems. Is it any wonder that people find it hard to believe in the resurrection if we don't throw our hats in the air? Is it any wonder that we find it hard to live the resurrection if we don't do it exuberantly in our liturgies? Is it any wonder the world doesn't take much notice if Easter is simply celebrated as the one day happy ending tacked on to 40 days of fasting and gloom? It's long overdue, he writes, that we took a hard look at how we keep Easter in the church, at home, in our personal lives, right through the system. And if it means rethinking some cherished habits, well, maybe it's time to wake up. In my experience, very little rethinking has taken place. I mean, we do treat Easter differently, especially than other weeks in the church. Uh, for some, Easter is viewed as the Super Bowl of the preaching calendar. So they'll spruce up the grounds, they'll put their best greeters at the main entrance, they'll put their best band on stage. In effect, they will roll out the red carpet for the friends and family of their regular attenders and the many guests who will uh, show up to honor the holiday. The worship leaders and pastors also take on a new look. For the traditional churches, they may incorporate uh, different colors in their vestments or in their stoles for the churches with pastors who wear jeans or in this case sweatpants. This is the perfect time to break out a tie or maybe a nice blazer. Uh, perhaps your your new J's, but you know nobody can see your feet these days, so that's a different issue. Congregants usually dress differently too. I, I remember as a kid there was one year when I had this really sweet white and yellow pinstripe suit. I mean, Jesus was risen and the rays of sunshine that were emanating from my pants and jacket were proof. On Easter Sunday, we usually sing some different songs, all anthemic, all excited, all moving to the same big crescendo celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Pastors will also typically focus their teachings more on the resurrection on Easter than they do maybe any other day uh, of the week. And this isn't to say that we don't talk about the resurrection a lot, but Easter is not the day for week four of your sermon series on how to manage your finances. Or, in our case, week 51 of a sermon series on the Gospel of John. That will be next week. You're welcome to attend. On stage, there may be fresh flowers and flashes of purple and white and the smell of candles and incense, depending on your tradition. It's altogether beautiful and meaningful and celebratory and vibrant and exciting, just as it should be. This is our highest holiday. Largely, though, our approach to Easter is thought of in terms of Easter as a service, as a worship event, as an hour-long experience for our parishioners. And the next day, it's, well, it's Monday. Your Easter outfit is 
likely in the dirty clothes pile in your room. Maybe you wake up humming a line or two of Elevation Worship's Resurrecting or uh, Charles Wesley's Christ the Lord is Risen Today, again, depending on your tradition. But the melody, it doesn't stick with you too long. You might have a leftover ham sandwich for lunch and for dessert, the tasteful people will partake in a Cadbury egg and the people that we pray for daily might have a peep or 20. But the festival, it's over. The celebration has ended and life, even church life, has gone back to normal. For the past couple of years, TRP has gone in a very non-traditional route in celebrating Easter. Instead of having a sermon and a praise band, we've hosted a party. So we've rented venues and we've decorated with lights and streamers and we set up a large connected table sort of to symbolize that we are one family. We've used beautiful borrowed glassware and china. We've set out cloth napkins and tablecloths and centerpieces. We've lit candles in abundance. Tessa and I love light and we love candles and we will place them all over the room if possible. We've served delicate and decadent homemade desserts and a cake from the local grocer Sam's Club. Perhaps you've heard of that. Uh, we've had fancy drinks and <clears throat> a small donated keg or two from our friends at Evo Brewery. Uh, we've yet to finish one, so you should be okay there. We get a DJ of some sort. Usually it's Josh Revel and a Spotify playlist. And we as a community, we try and fail to dance for extended periods of time. Now, I'm a Christian school kid. So this is what you get here. Get a little bit of that. Get a little bit of this and not much more. We've reasoned that this is how we celebrate other huge events in our lives. Weddings, graduations, uh, job promotions, birthdays, these sorts of things occasion parties. So why not celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, which happens to be in our belief system, the defining moment of all human history. And I don't know if this makes us the family that instead of celebrating Christmas, we bring out a birthday cake uh, to Jesus instead of celebrating Christmas and we sing happy birthday to him. I don't know if that makes us that family. But despite our attempts at celebrating and partying, we have not mastered the eight-day festival. We haven't mastered the celebration that continues on after our celebration, our, our party, our gathering. Monday, it still comes pretty quickly, in fact. And as it does, we get right back to the, our normal patterns and routines. This year in particular, I think our attempts at celebration, they might be even more tenuous than in years past. Not to ruin the vibe here, but our Easter service is a Zoom meeting. Uh, it's not what we imagined a few months ago. I mean, you're probably sitting in your kitchen at the old desktop computer in the corner wearing sweatpants and you're trying to figure out how to mute your microphone. It's in the bottom left of your Zoom menu. 
For other churches, it's a, it's a Facebook Live event where when the pastor says, He is risen, instead of responding in unison, He is risen indeed, the community might just hit an emoji of their choice. Maybe the praise hands, maybe a heart, maybe the heart eyes, who knows? But you, it's, it's weird in the response. And when these events are over, when we leave the meeting, or when we hit the little X in the top left of our computer screen, it's just us in our kitchens, in our sweats, at our computer, back in quarantine. Maybe a bit fearful, maybe a bit angry, maybe a bit bored, tired, maybe a bit let down by the fact that we're not having a celebration. Okay, okay, admittedly, that's a skosh, a skosh negative. So forgive me. And to be fair, it might even be inaccurate because for some of you, you might be having the time of your life. Again, I'm looking at my married folks with no kids. I'm looking at my college students that are still living in a communal uh, setting with some friends. I'm looking at the introverts that are surrounded by many, many books with a highly curated cue in your Netflix of shows that you have yet to watch. I would love to know what you're watching that the rest of us haven't already seen. I mean, I think we've kind of exhausted Netflix for all that it's worth. Regardless of your circumstances, I'm going to assume that it's been more difficult for you this year to conjure up fanfare for a risen savior when everything else in our world has been upended. I mean, I get it. I feel it myself. But as I come back to Wright's suggestion, it's long overdue that we took a hard look at how we keep Easter in the church, at home, in our personal lives, right through the system. I don't think here he's simply calling for better parties or more programmed church events the week after Easter, as if we get together for Taco Tuesday and Thirsty Thursday. I'm not sure that that's what he's, he's moving us towards. In fact, he's probably calling us for a complete reorientation of following Jesus that looks like we are living a resurrected life every day. So I thought, in the midst of the, the, the oddity that we are facing in this moment, that it would be good for our souls if we reminded ourselves what the death and resurrection of Jesus means. And maybe in so doing, we can be inspired to live differently because of it, to have hope because of it, even in the midst of quarantine, in this moment, of our uh, history. So here you go. If you would indulge me, this is Easter in approximately seven minutes or so. Now, can I get nerdy here for a second? Just just one uh, minute or three. Great, thank you, I appreciate that. You know, the Bible has many metaphors to explain the significance of Jesus' death. They utilize images from the court of law, from the world of commerce, from personal relationships, worship, the battleground. And for authors of the New Testament, it can't be limited to just 
one. So they use many different metaphors to help their audience grasp the significance and the meaning of what Easter is, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now here's a touch of controversy for your Easter sermon. It wouldn't be a good one without it. Uh, what makes the Bible so fun and, and also so frustrating is that these metaphors, they're bound up in a culture that actually understood them. Remember, the New Testament is written in that first century Jewish context, which is very dissimilar from our context. We don't understand these metaphors as easily as the original audience would have because our understanding of commerce and even relationships and, and worship and the court of law, they seem to be a bit different than they were in the ancient world. The metaphors, they, they don't speak our native language anymore. Now let's just take one popular example with sacrifice. Uh, there's quite a bit of background information that's necessary for us to understand Jesus's death as a sacrifice, even though that's one of the most common metaphors that, that we use to describe Jesus's death. Uh, one Old Testament scholar, John Goldengay, explains, sacrifice was a practice that was well known and therefore provided an illuminating metaphor. Here he's talking about the original audience of the New Testament, but it is now unfamiliar so that it becomes an obstacle rather than an aid. In order to help people understand Jesus's death as a sacrifice, one first has to explain sacrifice. But doing so, it removes the point about the metaphor which lay in its familiarity. It's like having to explain a joke, which is the absolute worst. It ruins the entire thing. And for us to, to sit and to explain Jesus by way of a metaphor that's no longer really in our inherited vocabulary, it's difficult. And most people can sympathize with this if you've ever attempted to actually talk about the sacrificial system with someone who hasn't grown up in the church. It's a mess. It's, it's bloody. It's, it's difficult for people to grasp what that would mean and why that was required in the first place. Now, I don't know about you, but all this talk about sacrifice, it just makes me want to dip into the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus and go verse by verse and then see how the author of Hebrews uses that information to reinterpret Jesus's death and explain it to his audience. That would be an Easter gift. I, I'm lying. I, I do know about you, and that is decidedly not what you want, especially here and now. So let's try something different, something that I have found meaningful in my own understanding of who Jesus is, something that may resonate with our souls with a bit less work going from one culture to another. Now, if we can update Easter in three and a half to four minutes or so, good. I think many people have the misconception that in order to be forgiven in the Old Testament, one must offer a sacrifice. Now, we're going to move away from this theme because I'm not going to unpack it for us in, in any sort of exhaustive nature, okay? But that's, that's not the case. Uh, there was forgiveness that took place without a sacrifice being 
offered. Again, Golden Gate writes, sacrifice was not designed to deal with real sin. And here he's specifically talking about in those first seven chapters of Leviticus, uh, what those primary modes of sacrifice were doing. It was different than a forgiveness of sin. He goes on, if you had worshiped another god or set fire to someone's grain, you could not solve the problem by offering a sacrifice. You simply had to repent and cast yourself on God's mercy. In other words, you had to ask for forgiveness. You can look if you want to, to trace this out in Psalm 51, which is um, traditionally known as the hymn that David wrote after the sin with Bathsheba. Uh, the woman that he committed adultery with and impregnated and then murdered her husband. That issue evoked a prayer from David, according to tradition, where he is pleading for God's mercy. There's no hint of sacrifice. It's just one who's saying, forgive me, be merciful to me. In, in these sorts of cases that might not be uh, included in Leviticus 1 through 7, God can respond to the prayers of God's people by choosing to carry their sin. In fact, in the Old Testament, the most common word that is translated in our Bible as forgive, it's actually a Hebrew verb that means to carry. Uh, it's nasa is how it's pronounced. That is, God would take the responsibility of the wrongdoing upon God's own self and own it and accept responsibility for it. God would pay for the consequences of the sin. The carrying of Israel's sin, it's included in perhaps the most important theological statement of the character of God in the entire Hebrew Bible. In Exodus 34, God describes his character in this way. It says, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, abounding in chesed. We've talked about this a few times in the videos that we've done leading up to this. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation forgiving, carrying, nasaing iniquity and transgression and sin. It's a powerful image of grace, right? Because of God's desire to continue in relationship with the people, God carries their iniquity and transgression and sin. God absorbs it. God owns it. God accepts responsibility for it. God settles it, forgives it, pays for it. And God does this in order to preserve relationship to the thousandth generation. Now in the New Testament, Jesus is presented as the exact representation of God. The book of John, the one that we've gone through for 50 some odd weeks, is at pains to equate Jesus's work with God's work. In fact, at the very outset, John describes Jesus as the incarnation of God. God in the flesh, God with and among the people. And as a result, we should expect to see Jesus doing some similar things to what we've seen God doing. Now, right here, if we're going to just talk about Jesus in the New Testament and God in the Old Testament, I realize that there's some issues there. There's clearly some differences between um, what's going on. There's some problematic texts even. 
But if we can understand the linkage between God and Jesus, perhaps we should expect Jesus to also be carrying sin. And indeed, this image, it comes to its climactic fulfillment on the cross. The very worst that humanity has is doled out upon Jesus. Their fear, their rejection, their anger, their lack of faith, their their screams of crucify him. Their screams of give us Barabbas. And Jesus carries it all. He absorbs it. He pays for it with his life. Yet, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of humanity saying no, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. He says, it is finished. No one knows that this is what Jesus is doing. No one knows that he's absorbing what's, 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 uh, what humanity is giving to him in this moment, the rejection, the fear, the anger, the sin, the transgression. Nobody knows what's happening here because at this moment, the people that were placing their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, when he dies, it's like the, it's the end. No one was expecting a Messiah to die and then to be raised from the dead. That just wasn't something that, that happened and that wasn't something that was in their frame of understanding. But then, as the story continues, when Jesus actually does rise from the dead, he changes everything. He appears to his followers to say, see, nothing can separate me from you. He says, the kingdom, the the one that I've been talking about this entire time, it's here. New creation, it's happening. I have brought it to bear. And now you all have a job to do. Join me partner with me. Now, I don't know what what kind of stuff you're bringing with you into this moment, but these concepts, I, I feel they're highly relatable to where we are. It's a God who says, I love you. I want you. There's nothing that you can do to separate my love for you. It's a God who demonstrates It's willingness to to carry and absorb all of the things that we bring. And that God in response says, I'll own this so that we can be in relationship, so that we can be together, so that you will join me. Now, sadly, TRP, we can't party together. We're not in the same place. There is no Cupid shuffle. I mean, at least right now, there might be later at your homes and that's something something different. We don't have any of Christie's homemade desserts on the table this year. We don't have Susie's mango salsa. We don't have my award-winning chili. Uh, we don't have any of Dan Hakim's freshly baked bread or Josh Revel's perfectly roasted coffee beans that are expertly prepared in a beautiful pour over. But again, I- I'm less interested in Easter as a once-a-year event, and I'm much more interested in the content of Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I'm interested that that becomes the very fountain from which we drink, the Savior who says, I love you, and I will absorb 
the things that you bring to me for the sake of this relationship. You see, in this story, we see our Savior carrying our sin, absorbing our wrongdoing for the sake of this continued relationship. He, he says to us, in, in a sense, there is nothing that you can do that will separate me from you. He says, I want you. He says, you are included. He says, you are accepted. He says, you are loved to the end of the earth. He says, follow me. And I believe that when that truth sinks down deep into our bones, it changes everything. Perhaps then we will throw our hats into the air, as Wright says. Perhaps then we will have champagne toasts after morning prayer and even before. Perhaps then we will live the resurrection. Perhaps then the world will notice. Perhaps then we celebrate not just for a day, not just for eight days, but longer, perhaps for the rest of our lives. Now I know that celebrating in quarantine is hard. And even though we're apart, I wanted us to remember what this is all about. And I also wanted us to have a small taste of our yearly celebration, perhaps to encourage us along in the midst of this difficulty. So even though we are separated by distance, we are united in our hearts. And even though celebrating might be difficult for us right now, given the circumstances, I hope that we remember why we celebrate in the first place. So together, we raise our glasses to life, to, to hope, to forgiveness, to peace and joy, to sacrificial love, to the women at the empty tomb. We raise our glasses to redemption secured, to reconciliation, to restoration, to the, to the death, death of sin, sin and death. death, to God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, to the participation of the saints, we raise our glasses to community, to inclusion, to having a seat at the table, to transformation, to becoming a part of the new creation. We raise our glasses to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, for he has defeated death, for his love is unstoppable, for he has carried our sins, for he reigns, for he is with us, for he is in us. He is risen! He is risen indeed.